Hey guys, Amanda Mork here from My Rock Moment, the show where we chat with some familiar faces about the stories and unforgettable moments that made them a diehard fan of rock and roll. Today we're talking with Todd Dammit Kearns. Todd plays bass for Slash, featuring Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators, but he's also involved in many other bands, including Took, The Age of Electric, and Todd Dammit and the Anti-Stars. So in this episode, Todd and I are going to talk about the bands that influenced him early on, like The Who, Kiss, Aerosmith. He'll also reveal the only rock icon he ever asked for an autograph. He's also got a great story about coming to L.A. from Canada and meeting Slash for the first time at none other than the Rainbow on the Strip. And for those of you that remember, Todd and I chat about the transition from metal to alternative in the 90s. There's a lot of great stuff in this episode, so let's get started. Todd, it is so great to have you on. Thank it's, you. It's great to be on. <laughs> <laughs> well, any other year you'd be on the road, though. Uh, probably, yeah. I mean, that's been, you know, it's funny because, yeah, sorry, I'll just jump right into it because it's been interesting for me. And we were talking a little bit about this, how the opportunities that have presented themselves by not being on the road right now. Um, so basically it's been eight months of not playing and every single musician and comedian and everybody I talked to were all kind of like, I haven't been off the road this long ever. Like not even like in years, it's like, I don't remember the last time because most of us, we make records and make music mostly for the excuse to be able to go out and play. It's right. not like, it's not like it was in the seventies and eighties and, and, and the nineties where you would make music and you could sell records and and that's where you made your living. It's, it's a lot different now where that's why Aerosmith and, you know, gentlemen of, uh, of retirement age are still out there cranking it out because you make a living on the road. And, uh, but being home has, has been really good. I mean, creatively and, and uh, you know, there's been a lot of writing and a lot of recording just today. Uh, uh, Dave Ellison from Megadeth put out this covers record he did that I sang on. And that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been sitting at home. You know, I was like, yeah, sure. I'd love to sing on that, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that's popped up during all this. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, it's because it's been a timeout. It's not like anybody's retiring right now, you know, they're trying to make the most of the time. And yeah, when you're on the road, I mean, I have to agree that it probably gets tiring with traveling, but the energy that you get from playing those shows and being with the people that, um, you know, are in the same creative space as you, that, you know, is something that I don't think anybody wants, you know, wants to let go of. You said the Stones, I mean, they're going, what, 60 years right now? Oh, There's yeah. a lot of reasons for that. There's no, a lot of yeah. reasons. But I mean, you yourself, you've got Slash featuring Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators, Two, mm-hmm. The Age mm-hmm. of Electric, your solo stuff, right? Todd yeah. Dammit and the Anti-Stars. Yeah. You have a lot that's going to pick up, I think, when we get back to some sort of normalcy. Well, I have to commend you on, on pronouncing Toke correctly. That's uh, you're one of the first people. Uh, it's usually Toke or they, they don't know. <laughs> it's a French Canadian word for basically a, a beanie. I'm trying to look around and see. I probably have one somewhere. Basically like the South Park pom pom on top of the up top of the hat. <laughs> they, you don't know because you're Californian, but in uh, in uh, basically anywhere <laughs> in the middle of the country, it's it's like that. Uh, yeah, no, we, I do have a lot of projects, but I, I've also, uh, you know, I, I've kind of been like, it's funny because talking about Dave Ellison uh, just a minute ago, I, it's funny. He and I both had a conversation uh, not that long ago about how he was saying he, Al Petrelli, the guitar player uh, who was in Megadeth for a, for a while, he was saying that he was the one that said to him, look, it's better to be double booked than not booked at all. That's and true. just, so just basically do everything. You know what I mean? And I, I'm not really, it's not really about money to me. Usually it's kind of more like I, I, I play bass with Slash and, and Miles and I sing all the harmonies and all that kind of stuff. But I am a singer songwriter guy and I was the lead yeah. singer in, in most of the bands I was in up until, up until that. Um, so I do have all these other itches that I, I have to scratch when that takes, you know, a break. And, and the Slash thing, although it's a band, it really sort of, it lives in this sort of project kind of category because Miles is in Alter Bridge. Now Slash has Guns N' Roses back together. And so, but the Alter Bridge thing has always sort of dictated um, when we can do uh, Slash stuff to the point that I, um, I I felt like we were going to run Miles ragged, really. I thought he was just going to fall apart one day because it felt like, you know, he would literally be like, 
Alter Bridge, Alter Bridge, Alter Bridge, slash, 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 Alter Bridge. You know, he just, and then, he, and then he stood, now he's doing solo records. It's like, he, but I, there was something to be said for these guys that, I mean, Slash is an animal. Like, I mean, I can't imagine how he's handling. I mean, I do know how he's handling because I just saw him last week, but, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I know how he's handling it is by, hey, guys, come to LA, you know, you know, that kind of thing. And, and let's, let's, let's play music. But um, it, it's tough because a lot of these guys are just wired and myself included are wired to be doing stuff. Like, and, you know, you, you, you long for a break, but that break comes and then you start to kind of feel that, like that feeling of like, I need something to do because this just starts to go, woo, woo, to, you know, your brain starts to kind of whir out of control. Yeah. And, and I, I think that that's, what's why I, you know, when you kind of list it, it sounds so crazy. Like, where do you find time to do anything? Like, do you pet the dog? And like, oh, <laughs> do you sleep? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it usually works out fairly, um, uh, you know, like I, I, the slash thing is all, all encompassing when it happens. It's, you know, you just, you literally, you have to give yourself over to it because of the recording and then the, then the, uh, the touring especially is, is, and Slash loves the tour. Like he li- would live on a bus and play shows every single day for the rest of his life. In fact, I think the only thing that that really keeps him from doing it is is to make records or to, you know, like it just you, you've run the course of it's the cycle of the record is done. It's time to do something else. But that Bob Dylan lifestyle of like the tour that never ends, Slash would do that 100%. And I think that I think we all would in our own way if we could do it comfortably. Um so, but there's breaks, and then when there's breaks, you know, Brent Fitz and I are both Canadian, and we have this Canadian project that we started doing called Took, and it started doing charities and just playing Canadian music, which was totally an insane idea. And then that became something. And then I do my own music, of course. Um, I, I just recorded a new project with some guys from the Ace Fraley band mm-hmm. called Minefield. That happened during COVID, so that was another one of those things where I was like. Just let's just throw another one on the pot. (laughs) But it's the kind of thing that, you know, all of these things sort of have found their own, uh, you know, if my life is a, is a pie chart, then there's, you know, slash covers a lot of it, but there are periods between records where we're often not doing anything for a year, sometimes two years. And that's kind of a normal cycle of records and bands these days is because it's such a touring market that bands go out and tour and eventually you kind of, you need to take a break to let people kind of miss you, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's for like, some sort of sanity too. I mean, and, and, yeah. to appreciate the road again and, and yeah. get on some sort of schedule. I don't know how you guys do it. I I, I do not know how you guys do it. You well, it's, fly it's, into a country, get on stage, jet lag. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. My friend said to me, he goes, you are in a constant state of jet lag. And I, I go, I, I, I totally agree because you're when, wherever you've landed. First off, you start like I was just talking to uh, my friend in Five Figure Death Punch, and we were saying how you go to Australia and you're ruined before you play the first show. Like you're just like you know you're delusionally jet lagged. So and then and then you know you're then the time zone to the next place, say Asia or wherever. You, you never really feel like you're kind of sorted. You're just kind of constantly, or you're just starting to get sorted in Australia, and then you get shipped somewhere else and and uh, you know i as a friend of mine said once they said look you only got to be solid for like two hours a day (laughs) (laughs) that's true you walk on stage just be your best and then just you know be in a coma the rest of the day if you can but it's tough you know i mean it's not it's not for the the you know the uh the the fair of heart and i know that um when it comes to uh like i have friends who are just regular dudes you know and, and I, and I always, and they're always kind of like, wow, you get to do this and you get to that. But I know they would never change places with me really like to go, okay, well now you're going to go to the airport and you're going to go somewhere crazy. And it's just going to be a circus whirlwind circus for three months, maybe six weeks. And then you'll get spit out and you'll come home. And, and it's as if the whole world has been on a pause button. So you come home and you're like, what, that store is closed? What, what, where'd the Starbucks come from? You're like, and, and, and your friends have all been living lives for those people broke up or well, you guys are a couple now, you know, like that thing. And you just feel like, like it's weird how life just keeps on churning along and you're like, oh yeah. But, I never thought about that. That's true. That's true. It's like, everything's on pause for you. Yeah. Yeah. 
But for everybody else, life keeps moving mm-hmm. and you've got to readjust every time. It is. That. It's like also weird time. too. And it's weird too, because we make friends in, in Australia, we make friends in South America, you make friends in Europe, you make friends in Asia. And you, and you, when you go to these places, it's the same thing. Like everything's been paused and you're like, Oh, you, your hair's short now, or you know, whatever. <laughs> why, are you, <laughs> why are you different than the last time I saw you? But that's, it's just this weird, and as a friend of, you know, somebody once said to me, it must be so hard saying goodbye all the time. And I, I said, yeah, but you're always saying hello. You know what I mean? Like you're always, you go somewhere and you're like, and you're embraced by, hopefully if you're lucky enough to be, you know, you go through a long period of playing music where you sometimes are often playing to people who don't really care who you are. And they're just waiting for you to stop playing so they can see the band they came to see. But, you know. <laughs> character building. <laughs> yeah, it's character building. <laughs> Uh, but you know, eventually you get to a place where hopefully, you know, you, you, you go to gigs and people are there to see you and, and it's, you know, it's, it's the best, but, um, you know, it can be hard on people and, and you have to have a very solid, uh, home team. And if you're lucky enough to have a solid home team, then you're, uh, you can make it work. And, and that's what the, I, I, we were talking about this earlier too, how I've tried to take advantage of that the most I can during this, you know, to be able to kind of like, I'm here, you know, yeah. you know, I can feed the cat and roll the garbage out on Friday night or whatever <laughs> night we have to do, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and all that normal stuff, which is like, uh, I, I find it, uh, because I don't do it normally. I, right. I find it really like, this is, this is really fun. Like I really enjoy this where my, most of my friends would be like, Ugh. right. Well, that's the thing. There's a time limit on it too. You're going to be back on the road at some point, you know, 2021 at some point, God willing. Yeah. Um, and this is going to be a distant memory. I, I don't know. It it's is unprecedented for sure. It is unprecedented. But like we also talked about, I've been lucky because I've been able to get some of you guys when you're not yeah. on the road and you're not trying to like squeeze me in. Oh, I've got 15 minutes at 1122. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Most everybody's but, sitting around going like, sure. Yeah. You probably can't get them off the phone. well we talk about some pretty interesting things and you know and that's why i wanted to have you on too because i know you've been doing this for decades with a variety of bands different projects um but i want to go way back when you were in canada i want to know and this this always fascinates me the moment the album um the concert that turned you know these musicians or even deep deep lovers of rock and roll onto the genre what was it that happened that, you know, when you said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, or you know what, this is kick-ass. Yeah, yeah. I like this. You know, that's, uh, it's so funny because I actually spent a lot of time trying to pinpoint when that is. Like, whenever I ask my older friends, there's always this moment of, like, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and <laughs> it changed my life, you know. I just had a conversation with uh, my friend Hugh from Bon Jovi about that, and, you know, and I'm always so jealous of that moment because... Not only did I grow up in Canada, I grew up in remote, frozen Canada. <laughs> so, was like, you know, so we were always a little out of touch. Um, we were probably getting everything late. Um, but we had, you know, TV shows like, say, Solid Gold and things like that. But I don't know if you remember that TV show. I do remember that TV yeah, show. Yeah. But there were like, you know, like little music shows. So you would see them. So we, you know, but I think my parents, my father always had a guitar. My mother played a little bit of piano. So there was music around, um, but it was definitely like, you know, finding my, my parents, like uh, they had the second album, Beatles second album. And it was just as a child, like, you know, the Beatles to me always seemed like some four headed monster. You know, they, they looked the same, like as a ch- from a child's eyes, the same haircut, the same suit. Um, and yeah, they just, they you know, it, it, you know, just like now I look at it like I as a kid, I couldn't tell who was singing. Now I can pick them out. I'm, I'm no, no problem. <laughs> Elvis Presley was the big one. I think, you know, those kind of things that my parents, my parents were, they liked music, but they were not uh, you know, like audiophiles or anything. They weren't like, oh, you got to get this pressing of, you know, Zeppelin four. You know, they didn't know any of that kind of stuff, but they had, you know, my dad was like Johnny Cash and a lot of yeah. outlaw country and that kind of stuff. So, um, but that, that feeling of like seeing uh, the other thing I was talking to my friends about is it's different now. And it was probably even different in the eighties or something like that, where you had MTV and you were constantly sort of watching um, music videos and that kind of thing. When I was a kid um, and living in remote wherever you would put on a record and you would stare at like kiss or whoever 
in two dimensional form just on the cover of the album. You never saw them moving. You know what I mean? Like it was a rarity to kind of see, um, unless you managed to catch them on television doing something. Uh, it was rare to kind of have that that thing where now you can watch. I can go online and go just pick an artist and see every right. show they've ever played, see everything that they've ever every anything they've ever done. Um, where back then there was just mystery to it. You know what I mean? So. So I was enamored with music and I would put the guitar on and my dad had this hollow body guitar and I was a kid and I'd run around the house pretending I was Elvis or something. And he would just kind of like, hey, this is a C chord. You know, my dad is the, the classic, you know, short tempered seventies dad of like, no, this is a C chord. That's a G chord. That's a D chord. Like that very sort of like matter. So he played. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he would, you know, he'd break it out once in a while and just kind of like probably a few drinks and, you know, sing for his friends or whatever. Um, but he wasn't, he wasn't like, uh, he never really had that sort of like, I'm going to be a musician thing. It was just something you did. Um, so, but that, that sort of started that process. It wasn't really until, I mean, I, I suppose I kind of think of it as the moment is when I kind of looked at Elvis and he seems like he's from Valhalla, you know, and Kiss were, you know, Kiss was a massive one for me too, but they always seemed like superheroes, you know, that, and the Beatles seemed like, you know, like, like, from you know they just like were dem demigods of some sort it didn't seem like anything anybody could do you know what i mean like it did not seem like right. you know you had to be touched by you know by god to even to be able to think about what that was as you get older as a musician you start to kind of peel it apart and realize that these are just four guys who just stumbled into each other and went like let's make some songs and then you know, but at the time when it's presented to you as the beatles are already broken up the beatles are already that's a chapter <laughs> of things and you're like it's just such a giant mountain to climb. You're like, I, I don't, I don't, I can't wrap my head around it. But I went and saw the movie, uh, The Kids Are All Right, which is a film about yeah, the yeah. movie. And uh, I was, I lived in a small town. We had this massive movie theater. At least it seemed like a massive movie theater. And uh, I would often go to movies by myself, not because I was a loner, but I, I and I, I sort of always had this thing of like, you know, seeing, you know, if I couldn't convince somebody to go see something as weird as like, a movie about the who of who I didn't even know who they were. I was, I was, you know, that was 19. I'm not quite sure, but I would have been, you know, a child. And I was like, I'm going to go see this just because I, I liked music and I was going to see it. And for some reason, those guys really made me, I walked out of that thing going like, I having that feeling of like, I think I could do this. You know, I think I, it, for, like I said, those other guys were all from heaven and the who just seemed real. Like there was a smashing of guitars and there was, and they weren't real pretty yeah. boys. There wasn't really like sort of like a, a quaffed thing to them. It was very sort of like very Nothing buttoned up. No. Yeah, very aggressive, very. And that sort of led to punk rock, which the who I think in a lot of ways is sort of a gateway drug to a lot of because uh, punk rock started to happen around then. And that became a lot more like you don't have to be Pink Floyd or Emerson, Lake and Palmer, like that kind of like highbrow stuff where this is a this chord and that is a that chord. And you're like, what? Because <laughs> you, know, like, you and your friends can knock around playing three chords as loudly as possible. And that's when that started to happen was it was just me and my friends just finding ourselves in basements and just all plugging into one amplifier, making a horrible racket. You know, <laughs> God bless all these patient parents. That was the one where I went, wow, I can't wait to plug into a loud amplifier and, and just like, blow up my parents house you know <laughs> this is what yeah this is what i'm capable of and I, I totally get that because growing up as a teenager my reprieve was going into my bedroom and listening to classic rock and there were so many bands that i loved that were from canada though i mean you talk about Joni mitchell and neil yeah. young and yeah. bto the band yeah lover that's boy. Right. <laughs> of course lover boy. i mean don't forget <laughs> and so many more i'm not even talking about the currents but back then i was like this is a place to be. There's some good stuff coming out of there. Well, you it's know? weird too. And that's why we started that band too, because we all grew up very regionally on the music that was around us, you know, as you do. Saskatchewan, uh, right? Saskatchewan, you know, right in the middle above probably North Dakota. I'm quite, not quite sure. It's, it's very cold. I originally lived in, in Northern Manitoba and well, I was born in Saskatchewan, went to Northern Manitoba, came back to Saskatchewan, graduated high school and slowly made my way West to Vancouver, which is, more like a Seattle type. Love it. Uh, you, you know, well, there's no not snow anyway, but it would be gray for giant chunks of the year. Um, but yeah, so I mean, Canada 
it's such its own animal that way. And you can have like, like, you know, Finland or Sweden, there are bands there that have careers or artists there who have careers, you know, or France for that matter. Like, you know, Johnny Holiday is like, was the Elvis of France. He was massive in France and, and other little regions. But so, it, so for us, it was, uh, it was interesting to grow up on that music and then, and then to come down here and go, Oh, you've never heard of this. Of course you would not have heard of it. It's like, you know, it's like, uh, but a lot of things cross over rush, um, yeah, rush you know, all that kind of, you know, Russia triumph bands like that were sort of international in, in a much bigger way. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff crosses over, but a lot of it is very regional. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it, it's definitely true. But uh, I think you guys actually have, uh, there's so much going on in the U.S. that we tend to get very like America centric. You know what I sure, mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it, there's so many great bands that even just came out of L.A. Oh, alone. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, what? I should take that back because there's a difference. There's bands that are from L.A. Right. right. So like Slash. He's from the Valley. Right. Yeah. Um, I think he went to high school with uh, Adler. So yeah, they were from you, LA back in the day. They tell, he tells me the funniest stories of like, yeah, you know, Lenny Kravitz was for, for a period was in LA at, the, at school with him, the flea. I'm like, oh, yeah. what? what? <laughs> it's like, you know, all these yeah. like, like just like everybody It's like growing up in like, well, was, he did go to like, um, he lived in Hollywood a bunch. You know, it's it's a very his is a very interesting story because he's born in England and then suddenly ends up in L.A. So, it, mm-hmm. it's, uh, but he is an L.A. guy. Like once in a while, I'll say we'll be sitting at like a studio in L.A. and I'll go like, "How far are we from where you grew up?" He goes, twenty minutes." I go, "Because for me, my life has been sort of like I grew up way up there, and it's been a constant sort of." There's a great Bob Dylan line that to paraphrase it says something like, "I was born a long way from where I belong," you know what I mean, or something uh... like that which I think is a beautiful, beautiful thing to say. Although I, I, I still have, like, we were watching some, oh, we've been watching a, a TV show called Shit's Creek, which is yeah, yeah. a Netflix thing, which is a Canadian thing. And, mm-hmm. and every once in a while, I'll say to my wife, I go, you know, I really miss this home, this small town vibe. And she's like, no. The <laughs> <laughs> novelty wears off quick. <laughs> as, if I, as if I'm threatening to, like, we're going to move to, like, tiny town Saskatchewan and like, you know, where it's just like the cafe is the only restaurant in town. And the gas station is the only place where you can get, I don't know, cigarettes or whatever you need. Um, but yeah, yeah the no, grass is uh, always greener. Yeah. It always feels that way. But I, I, I had a lot, tons of conversations with my friends who were lucky enough to grow up in LA, but you know, and I sort of said, well, you're already ahead of the curve. And, and my, and my one actor friend was kind of like, look, you know, you can grow up in LA and still not make connections or still not be talented or, or any number of things. Uh, that's why people from Des Moines, Iowa end up coming here and, and, you know, becoming successful or whatever. It's just, uh, but mm-hmm. actually the idea of growing up in Los Angeles to me would seem, but yeah, I know even growing up in studio city, it seemed like Hollywood just seemed like that's across the hill. That's, that's somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so to me, it, it, getting to LA is such a, or, or in the biz, I first went to LA. I I can't really remember because I wasn't really old enough to be in the bar. And uh, you know how, like back in the day in the Sunset Strip, you could they'd let you in. I can't remember how that all worked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how did it all work? Well, yeah, yeah I was a lots bit confused. of fake IDs. Well, and... <laughs> yeah. But sometimes they would let you in underage to see shows. I can't remember yeah. exactly how that worked because it was yeah. weird for us because you could drink in Canada in certain places. You can drink at eighteen. At eighteen. Mm-hmm. Some places at 19. Um, so, but LA, you know, we, the States was 21. So we were like, what? Yeah. And we'd already been, you know, a lot of us have been fake IDing since we were like 14, 15. You know, like, and uh, <laughs> and then I go down to, I went to Gazari's on a Tuesday night. Oh my gosh. And I was like, and I was like, this is going to be awesome. You know, Van Halen and Molly Crew and, and that whole thing that was happening, you know, this is going to be like, I'm going to see you know, get my life changed by just seeing a Hollywood band, you know, it's, and I remember they were probably one of the worst bands I've ever seen. (laughs) I don't remember who they were. And there was like nobody in there. It was like the weirdest thing. Cause you know, you're kind of expecting it to be like, I don't know, like, like, like the decline of the Western civilization. Totally. And, or like, or like, you know, all those footage of the doors and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I walked in there and it was like, it was really dead and a band played and it seemed very uneventful. And I was like, 
And I remember it being kind of like this feeling of like, oh, is this all this is? You know, kind of like, I could do this. You know, I was already playing music. I was already in bands. And, uh, you know, but we came back about 91. And that's a really weird story because we came back in 91 and we tried to do the, uh, we didn't try. We, we did the L.A. strip, handing out flyers. Yeah. And, and everybody talks about like as if January 1st, 1990, the strip was closed. Like the grunge happened. It's like, no, it was, it was, it was rocking for a long time. And uh, we came down in 91, you know, trying to showcase and get, get signed and all that kind of stuff. Didn't quite go that way, but we had, you know, you'd go to the rainbow every night and it was just like a constant who's who back then, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I always tell Slash the story because he, we were sitting in the November rain booth. I call it that one at the back in the back booth. Yep. You know, where in the video, they're all sitting there with their, with their wives and stuff. And we were just sitting there, me and my band. You know, a couple of our crew guys and Slash was sitting in the corner booth. There's a picture of him now with the bottle of Jack Daniels on that wall. And I've uh, seen it. Yeah. He, so he's in that booth because that was kind of his booth. And he they were there a lot. Like it was just after it, Use Your Illusions hadn't come out yet. So it was like they were already like the our favorite band on the planet. Appetite changed as much as they talk about never mind changing everything, the Nirvana record. I always say uh, Appetite changed. In, in, a, in a different way, it changed everything, too, because one day it was like everybody had big hair and white pants, you know, <laughs> and then all of a sudden guns came out and it was like, no, that's yeah, that's this not happening. This is done. It's a rougher sound now that everybody was trying to emulate. You hadn't even you hadn't met Slash. You didn't know Slash. No. At that no, but I was a massive fan, you know, I mean, so but the weird thing is, is that Slash, who is, you know, the best guitar player on the planet in the coolest band on the planet pretty much the biggest band on the planet, really. Like, they were still kind of like, you know, Sweet Child of Mine was a massive hit. They were like, a, but they sort of had this street cred still. Like, they were kind of like, you know, like a, prior to Use Your Illusion, where it became like a stadium act. Um, anyway, he stands up, and he just kind of comes over, like with a drink in his hand and a cigarette, like he's Dean Martin or something. You know, it's like, <laughs> or, or like the mayor of, you know, Hollywood. And he's just sort of like, hey, who are you kinda guys? Was. Yeah, he kind of was, yeah. And he just kind of goes, hey, who are you guys? And we're like, you know, I was just kind of like, what? It's as if, it's as if Slash, you know, is talking to some 19 year old kids, you know, I guess we probably would have been about 20 in our twenties by then, because that was, we were playing clubs and he, and we're just like, uh, you know, we're from Canada. Somebody say something. Yeah, yeah, it's like, and he goes, Oh, Canada. Wow. And he sits down with us and his friends sat down with us and he just hung out with us. Like it was the weirdest thing. I always tell him that story. Of course he wouldn't remember it, but he, he always goes, was I nice? I go, you were awesome. <laughs> I remember our, I remember our lighting guy, one of the roadies we had with us. He, he would always tell the story. He goes, slash lit my last cigarette. Cause he quit smoking the next day for some reason. And he goes, and I always remember thinking. It's a dubious that's, honor. Yeah, I know. That's, that's hilarious. It took slash a lot longer to quit. He was definitely different. And I mean, and we all grew up, we were kids and we wanted to have long hair and play rock and roll. Cause that's, you know, what I you did. <laughs> and then the alternative thing happened. And it felt very natural because it, when I when I talk about appetite being such a, a monumental moment, there are multiple moments like that that sort of I and I, I've analyzed this as a music nerd many times the transition into alternative and I feel like Jane's addiction deserves a lot of a lot of the gateway between metal into alternative. Um, the Chili Peppers were a big part of that kind of thing too. Where I started to feel like people started to be less worried about big hair and, and that kind of thing. And, and it started yeah. to kind of be more about, um, you know, different flavors and stuff like that. And then as things moved into the, and when Nevermind happened, then it was, you know, it clearly was a, a massive moment. But at the same time, when you look at Pearl Jam or you look at Soundgarden or you look at Alice in Chains, they were just rock and roll guys playing hard rock in a slightly different way. You know, it was a little less about strippers and <laughs> they, yeah. wasn't, they weren't singing about that stuff they were singing about probably in reality things that were a lot more real and i think that's why it connected with kids in the way that you know i the angst of, of being a kid the 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 isolation that people were feeling and i think that you know when that led into that so i have a lot of friends who still to this day have very negative <laughs> thoughts about what happened because a lot of us had something going on that was negatively affected by this shift in popularity as far as what was you know kind of cool but that you know but fashion is like that it's like when i listen to my friends complaining about 
you know, back, you know, I'm just like, we're literally sitting on our front porch screaming at kids on the lawn. I guess, you know, it's like, <laughs> like when did I turn into a curmudgeon? <laughs> yeah. And I, I kind of find I'm not that guy. Like I actually am always fascinated with like, you know, like with, with things like when hip hop really started to happen, we were always like really excited about that whole thing. And I understood entirely. And I think I understand in a lot of ways of how the dangerousness of what goes on in that music it used to be the dangerousness in punk rock and heavy metal and all that kind of stuff that kids kind of gravitated to. And I think that, you know, uh, even thrash metal when it started to happen, that was an antithesis of like the pretty boy rock thing was going on. Now it's like sweaty, dirty rock and roll kind of thing. And I always understood that. And I, I, I think it's okay. There has to be multiple flavors of, of music. There has to be, you know, it, it would be weird if it was just like, here's music. Like it was some sort of no name <laughs> product. Like, Generic. Yeah. Here's the new music CD for you. You, We all listen to exactly the same thing. And have you heard the new song? <laughs> <laughs> I have. I like the new song. But I mean, that's, you're right. That's not how it goes. And I, yeah. I clearly remember, you know, in my teenage angst, um, watching this kind of, a lot of 90s music didn't really resonate with me. Sure. But as it got darker, um, yeah. I remember absolutely loving Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. I yeah. loved Marilyn Manson. I yeah. loved Corn. These were yeah. hard sounds. And yeah. I think it probably paralleled, like I said, that teenage angst even as a young girl, you know, oh, I didn't course, have to yeah. be some angry teenage boy sitting in my room. No. As a young girl that was kind of mirroring the ups and downs and the feelings and the, the greater self-awareness that was happening. Um, of course. But, I, I think that that's, I mean, that's the beauty of music in general. It's like, it was just not that long ago. I was standing there like uh, nothing but a good time by poison was playing. And, and I was just kind of like, I stopped and looked at the, at the, at the screen and I thought, and in, in that moment, I kind of got it. I just thought, hey, you know what? It's just it's escapism from like, you know, my job sucks and, and my girlfriend broke up with me. But like, woo, party. Really, <laughs> on Friday night, we're going to, you know, and I, and I went like, oh, I understand. You know, Because yeah. I, went, I went through the entire 90s sort of where I was never one of those guys who was like, oh, I never listened to Motley Crue. You know, oh, I never listened to, you know, but I remember the 90s being a very tough time to, I remember like, we on the, being on the road in my band and I, I wrote Ozzy across my fingers as a joke, you know, just kind of like in Sharpie, just kind of like, I thought it'd be hilarious. And I remember like some journalists saying these guys, these guys are just fake hair metal band, just disguising as, and I remember being like, I, are you going to try and tell me you didn't listen to Ozzy Osbourne? It's like, <laughs> it's like, to me, it's a given that we all of a certain age group just kind of grew through all of that. And whether you like yeah. the cure or the pixies or, or Depeche Mode or whatever you like, we liked a lot of different stuff, but it was just sort of like, you know, but we, as a rock band, we just sort of became, not even became, but you just sort of gravitated towards whatever's going on in a sense. It's a lot harder when you become older because as you, as I've noticed, and you mentioned this before, living in America can be a lot more sort of all consuming whatever's going on in America. You, you do, you do get a lot of like when you're in the music business, that sort of feeling of like, uh, this is what's happening now. Yep. And I, and I, and I've had a lot of friends in the music business where it's like every, few years they look radically different than they did before and it's kind of like you know that they've got that weird emo haircut for a while <laughs> and, then they, and then all of a sudden they've got the long hair and a beard and i'm like okay so it's sort of everything's kind of constantly shifting within whatever is is sort of in fashion and especially as a as a side kind of guitar player or, or side musician and you're trying to get gigs and whatnot you're kind of always changing and i and i i think that's somewhat natural but at the same time it's kind of like I see now that, you know, what we have found that when they say rock is dead or rock and roll is dead and, and in America, it's, this is what's happening or that's what's happening. or And I go, yeah, but I go to Australia and, and South America and all over the world and we play to kids, kids like I, we're not like we're not like going and playing to, uh, you know, uh, 40s, 40 and 50 year olds. We're literally playing to kids who who missed that wave of Guns N' Roses back yeah. in 1980, whatever, and or take your pick of any of those bands. To them, it's kind of like, you know, whether they're talking about um, Guns N' Roses or or like Dogs de Moor or Demals or any of these bands that you kind of, you, you vaguely kind of remember from back in the day, these kids all have found that music. And it's kind of like, they kind of came out the other side of the, 
why is it always so serious? Can't we just have a good time? <laughs> you know, and that doesn't mean that you know we aren't singing about serious things. I think that actually Miles uh, is a is a is an extraordinary lyricist and has, is always saying something of, of relevance. Um, and I think that goes all the way down the line. In reality, Axl Rose or, or any of the Guns N' Roses records, they're not really about like party good time music. Maybe Night Train about getting wasted or whatever. But it is all there's. It's all you know, saying something. But yep. You know, that's it's up to the individual to take it how they want to take it. You know? That's exactly it. And some people are in it for the music. Some people are in it for the lyrics and some people are yeah. just in it for the entire package. And, and I did it at the time. It was the entire package, but they were actually trying to say something. I think there was some pretty good songwriting going on there, but and so, and sometimes just a loud guitar with, you know, drums and all that just makes people kind of want to have a good time. And that's, you know, that's it. Oh like you say, not everybody's sitting there going like, like just listening, like, like it's a, like it's a beat poetry thing or something. <laughs> it's kind of like, they're not sitting there listening to like what's being said. They're just having a great time because the music makes you want to, you know, want to rock out or dance or whatever. That's exactly know? it. And you know what? And, and you talked about playing all over the world. And I think that actually begs the next question because you have been doing this a long time, but what was the moment? I don't know what band you were with or what the situation was, but what was that moment? And you're standing on the stage and you're going, this is it. I made it. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to think of that because it was such a transition, a, a real transitional, uh, process mm. because for me, it was like, you know, like when I think of like, when we talk about this eight months being off right now, it seems like, you know, the day I started, we put a band together and we started playing at like high school dances and stuff like that, which was like literally a thing when I was a kid. And, and it's sort of like, you know, That's awesome. yeah, I know. And like, you like play like top 40 music at like go to different towns and play on a Friday night or something. <laughs> um, before they would have said like, you know, we could probably save a lot of money just getting a guy to play records. You know, they're, they're like, no, we had a full band. You know? Nothing like um, live music. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what we did. And, and, but it seemed like when I, when I think about back then, um, literally my life has been like always playing music, like in one fashion or another. And, and sometimes you're playing to people who were into it sometimes. And then when I sort of graduated into clubs, then you were like, then you, you, you had to get, um, that's when you really kind of learn the, the act of like, you know, turning it on, even though, you know, like we'd play these towns where like, you know, it'd be like some town where like all these oil, uh, rig kind of, guys would come there and, and make money at, at an oil thing and then go back to their lives. But they'd be like these kind of, you know, men with their backs turned to us, basically sitting at, at their tables, drinking beer and not caring that these girly men were on stage singing whatever they were singing. And, uh, you know, and that, that doesn't mean there wasn't a table of, of kids having a good time or another table of some girls, you know, whatever. But every man goes through that, right? You have to, I mean, uh, you have to. It's paying your dudes. I can't imagine being 23 years old and just being handed the keys to the city because that did not happen to me. You know, I was like, we had to kind of like really work to a point where, you know, there's a one table of people or, or one five people over here who like us. The next, you know, later months later, it's like 10 people like us, you know, and it sort of grows sort of very casually. And then I do remember like in, in Age of Electric, my band in Canada that went on to do really well. Um, there was a point where we started as, as a bar band, just playing around and that all that, everything I'm talking about, like, you know, some talent, some gigs would be like, wow, we're, we're, we're the best band on the planet, you know, and then other, other ones would be very sobering and humbling. And then uh, I remember us making like records and, and like, but even the making of records, nothing ever felt like you know, just like, here's, here it is, man. We just made it. Everything came with a sort of like, you know, like it was sort of like you're handed something great, but it's also comes along with something very humbling at the same time. And, you know, with that, a lot of, as an independent band too, like nothing ever feels like, boom, you're on the radio, you're driving a Rolls Royce and you live in a mansion. It's it's never like that. It's kind of like, and, and the nineties was a very interesting time because talking about that earlier, it became kind of almost uncool to be too like congratulatory. Uh, and, yeah. yeah. And, okay. and even to be like, we were getting played on the radio, but it always kind of had this thing of like, you know, we can't take this too seriously. You know, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it is, you know, meanwhile, you're kind of like, you know, you're, you're, you're celebrating inside, but it's, you couldn't be too cool about it. But I do remember showing up, we would go back East to work Toronto where like, 
you know, it's like a whole other scene out there. And 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 showing up at gigs for the first time to do sound check, and there would be people waiting for us. And I remember being like, "What's going on here? Is there like a a flea market right or a yard sale going?" On? For me, what? and then yeah, and they're like you know holding your CD, your compact disc, or whatever, and you know that kind of thing. So that was one of the first times I go, "Oh wow, these people kind of care," you know, and. uh but I, even then, it's still, it's still, you know, it's still balanced with this hum- humbleness of like getting into a van and driving through the freezing cold, and then like, oh, the van broke down, you know, it's like it's not like so. But I think every band has to experience that kind of feeling of like the the complete celebration yes. and the ceremony, and then all of a sudden this sort of like humbleness of it all. And I, mm-hmm. I have many stories of of our, you know. You know, if you, as soon as you thought that you you were kind of getting a big head, you would just get a big old slap across the face from reality, and that's that's important, I think. You know, it's very important. Yeah, I mean, how you have any perspective? How do you appreciate anything when it comes your way if you don't know what it feels like to just be right through the coals? You know, either by you know music critics or your fans or whoever it is. I mean, yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of people see the end game, they see the finished product, and they think this looks pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, without knowing all the work and uh, the thick skin that you yeah. need to develop to get yeah. it. Now, I totally get that. Well, yeah. and, and this, and maybe you already answered the question, but I can imagine that through the years you have met so many people, a lot of people that were probably, you know, ironically, I love how, you know, everything comes full circle, that were probably your heroes as a kid. Oh, yeah. Well, what was one that you were like, my God, I'm not. This is, uh, this is. This is awesome. <laughs> I've been very lucky. And, and I will say, I said it in, in, in words the other day for the first time. I, I hadn't really realized it. Because um, I, I told a story. To, I was telling my wife the other day how we were recording in the studio. Um, at, and Aerosmith was recording Get a Grip. Oh. In, they were in the big studio. And I was in a closet right here making our music. And I handed, I took... Uh, the previous record pump and I gave it to the front desk lady at the studio who was a friend of ours. And I go, it's my dad's birthday. Do you mind getting uh, this signed? Do you think that would be cool with that? Like I was kind of really humble Canadian guy, but like, I don't want to bother the guys, you know, because I mean, we were like, you know, it's when you, it, it turns into Wayne's world that we're not worthy. Of the time. <laughs> you, know, you see, you see those guys and you're like, it's, it doesn't seem real. Like, it seems like I'm not going to bother these guys. I'm, I'm really, I'm really bad for that. Like I've missed all kinds of opportunities to meet people. Cause I'm like, oh, I'm not going to bother that guy, you know, but, uh, but, I, but I, I, I'd rather have that opportunity than like bothering somebody and them telling me to get lost. You know? I'm um, kidding. Anyway. So they, they signed the CD. I gave it to my dad for his birthday. He uh, which, he's not. That's the funniest <laughs> thing about it. I just thought it was kind of one of those, those funny things where he would be mildly impressed that, I'd gotten this thing signed and it's still sitting in in their house. Like kind of like, yeah, there's this thing. Um, But I said to, I said to my wife, I go, the only person I've ever asked for an autograph was Lenny, Lenny Kilmeister. And, and that was 10 years ago. Like I was already like in the biz and doing the thing, playing with Slash. And I was just sitting there. um, You know, I I played with Lenny on a couple of occasions. Um, Uh, or had I? No, actually, I'm 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 sorry. I, I'm I'm lying. Uh, we had seen Lemmy at the Rainbow on a number of occasions. And oh had, yeah, had a couple of like kind of like you know quick kind of back and forths. But it wasn't until uh, we were doing I had joined Slash's band and it was this explosion of like activity. Like it was like I had joined and it was like we're going to be on Jay Leno like in a next week. You know, it was just like madness. Like it just rolled out crazy. And then we were getting ready to do this Golden Gods Awards that Revolver Magazine puts on. And Lenny was going to come play a song that he sang on Slash's solo album at the time. And Dave Grohl was going to get up and play uh, Ace of Spades with him. And it was, it's a whole wow. thing. So, so Lenny shows up at rehearsal. And it's always great because he would show up uh, and his, his guy would always have like uh, Coca-Cola and Jack Daniels. And, you know, they would just come in like with this kind of like tiny posse of like of his stuff because like, mm-hmm. he was just singing with us. So we didn't bring a bass. But I remember he walked in and he's an ama- he was an amazing guy, like 
Um, the thing about Lemmy that was always uh, the most engaging is that when he was talking to you, he was he was talking to you. He never had that kind of thing of like that Hollywood thing of like, you know, is there somebody else I should be, you know, more important I should be talking to? And I always and I I did it to him almost every time I'd see him. I'd hey Lemmy, I'm Todd. I play with, and he was always like, yeah, I know. <laughs> he was amazing like he was amazing at remembering it. i'm just like that stupid canadian guy going like i'm todd I play slash we did that thing together and he's always like yeah i know uh but at the time i remember he comes into rehearsal and, and we're just kind of like we played through the song we sang he, he stood with me and the, and the guitar player and he goes like there's a three-part harmony in the in the in the, in the bridge section let's and we just sang a cappella together and it was just that moment of like, what is going on? <laughs> like, you know, like, like, I just imagine my my 13-year-old self sitting in the basement with my friend listening to, uh, you know, No Sleep Till Hammersmith, the live Motorhead album. I just go, what, what? Like, and I, I, I literally handed him the Sharpie. I'm like, will you sign this bass? I was, I was holding and he goes, and he just kind of like goes really quickly, like he does it all the time. He just goes, yeah. And, and then he just gets back into rehearsal. But it was like, and that, and that sort of says, I think that says, everything right there that the only autograph I really asked for in my life was Lemmy. You know what I mean? So, so I think that even though I've, I've, you know, we got to play with Rick Nielsen from cheap trick, which was a major deal for me, all the Aerosmith guys we've been in close quarters with, which again is, is always crazy to me. And and I'm such a music guy that way that I, it's none of it's lost on me. I'm like, I'm like, when you talk about the rainbow or the whiskey or the Roxy or CBGBs in New York, which I played at or, any or, or you know any of those places to me are holy ground you know yeah. I, I, as a music lover like going to nashville and all those places um it's it's all like i take it really seriously like i really love all that you know getting alice cooper gets up with us all the time like i almost forget oh, he's like, such a nice guy he's amazing yeah so i almost forget these things like it's like oh yeah alice was there you know it's like but every time it happens i'm like what is going on like it's just kind of you can't help but be like 12 years old and going what is what is going but I, I suppose it's somewhat true. And it's one of those things where, especially because now that Lenny's gone, it sort of has this sort of extra weight to it. you know. And, and I, I get to sing the Lenny song that Slash wrote with him every night. And that's, and that's, a, you know, it's always a huge honor to me to be able to do that when we yeah. do it, you know? Um, so yeah, that, I guess when you, when you ask that, I, I, I have to always land on Lenny. And I think that that was the biggest thing for me is, 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 is what I have put upon him. You know, what I think of him when he walks in is this, larger than life character, but he's able to kind of, like I say, stand there and talk to you. And uh, on a number of occasions, I would sit backstage at things and, and Lem would be there and it'd be like, he br- used to bring a plastic bag full of paperback novels, which was the funniest thing. Like you would look at like his little area would be like a Jack Daniels bottle, Coca-Cola and this plastic bag. And I, and he would just sit there with his feet up on the thing and there's madness going on around him. Like, it's just like daytime show day madness. And he's just got his little glasses on and he's reading his book. And I was like, and then he would just like, you know, he just, he was just the most real guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, even though he lit, he was basically like a space pirate, <laughs> you know, but he was the most real guy ever when you really kind of boiled it down. I know exactly what you're saying. And it, oh, it makes the moment that much better. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's different if like, you know, like. I can't think of anybody, but on occasion, you know, I mean, I, I will say meeting the, the Kiss guys is a big deal yeah. for me because as a massive Kiss fan, a lot of why there's a Paul Stanley guitar right there and a Gene Simmons bass right there. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's a big part of who, you know, as a, as a kid and, and getting into music, that was a big part of it, you know? So, um, but I think I also kind of was, uh, I don't know, like I, I felt like I, when I finally got to meet them, it was sort of on a, on a, on a more common ground as a musician and that kind of thing where it's not so much like, Hey guys, you know, you know, and I, and I think that's, you know, yep. it, I, I would never refer to any of these guys as sort of like friends, as, but it's more like, you know, you know, guys that you, you just see around in the biz, you know, Aerosmith, same thing. I, I've, I've only had a handful of, of interactions with Joe Perry, but I still to this day will always think of Joe as like, you know, the coolest of the cool, you know, and, yeah, and Steven and Steven, uh, Steven as well, obviously, but, but I think because I've had way more interactions with Steven. And Steven is a lot more, uh, he's so much, he's so good at being Steven Tyler. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. And when you interact with him, it's kind of like, you know, you're getting the full package. You know what I mean? And Joe is so much more like you only get like little bits and pieces when you, when you talk to him. He's like the icy cool dude that you don't really get a whole lot of time with. 
right. least I have. Right. But yeah, so I, I have, I, like I said, I, I never lose that romanticism of rock and roll. So all these guys, they mean something to me, you know? And that's awesome. That's how yeah. it should be. You know, I mean, that's why you get into it in the first place. Um, well, I could talk to you all day, Todd, and I feel like I've only scratched the surface <laughs> in terms of all the stories that you have. But but before I sign off and I ask everybody this, because I think it's so interesting, first concert you ever went to. You're going to love this. Um, because I'm Canadian, it's the most Canadian concert of all time. <laughs> Lover boy. <laughs> <laughs> I called it. But not only Lover Boy, the opening act was this hot new young artist named Brian Adams. Who? yeah it was like you know i was really young i remember having to convince my parents because we lived in a small town outside of the city and uh and i had to convince them that my friends are going to take me and we're going to come right back it was an hour out of you know an hour out of town and uh so you know lover boy was massive it's like working for the weekend was (laughs) was a massive song you know especially in canada and uh and yeah we go there and there's this this young upstart, Brian Adams. You know, he was like, who went on to be Brian Adams? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Massive. Yeah. So oh it my was, God, that's it is awesome. really, it really is one. the most Canadian concert I could have possibly. Yeah, but those are two, I mean, it doesn't matter, two big acts. That's a solid first concert. I, I think so. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I, and the weird thing is this is, is not that long ago, we played the very venue that I, that I, that I saw that concert in. And it took me a second to wrap my head around. I've done this on a couple of occasions where um, I've seen shows at, and we were playing a place called The Showbox in, in Seattle once. And I was standing on stage. And at the time, I, I came down from Vancouver to see the band Him, who we really loved at the time. And, you know, I, we went into The Showbox and watched the show, but I, I hadn't put that together in my brain. And I was in the middle of the show standing there going, why does this place seem so familiar? Like I'm in the middle of a show and I'm like rocking out with the crowd. And and I look over to where about where I was standing watching him. And I go, I've, I've been to this place before. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. But the, the lover boy one was especially weird because I was like, you know, it took me a second. Like we, you know, you kind of roll into the venue and you kind of get a coffee and you get situated. And then you kind of walk out on stage for sound check. And I go, wait a second. I was a little kid, like, well, not a little kid, but I was a kid right about there, like, you know, somewhere in front of where I stand on stage. And I go watching Loverboy on this stage, you know? So it's, it's that, that's not lost on me either, that kind yeah. of stuff. So, you know, it, 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 it uh, I've had, I've been lucky enough to have those experiences on, a, on quite a few occasions now where I've been like, I used to see shows here and like, I'm now playing. And now I'm on the stage. Yeah. 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 I'm feeling. Cool. All right. We'll top five albums. Oh, that's I tough. I know everybody. Gets I always tough. have. I have this conversation with top five movies, top five albums. I, I would have to put. Uh, well, Kiss Alive, I'll put in there. Um, the that's Ramones, the Ramones' first album. Actually, three. The three that I always go to are the Ramones' first album, Kiss Alive One, or just Kiss Alive, Appetite for Destruction. Then it starts to get a little more dicey because there's. It's really hard for me to like, like just kind of like work down into like Beatles records, I suppose, Abbey Road, maybe, oh, yeah. maybe Revolver. Oh, I love that. Um, this is going to be a, a very dicey top five because it's going to be like, I'm going to go like through 10 things and we're going to have to try and like. And then you're going to remember some when we hop off. and you're Exactly. Like, like, I changed my mind. <laughs> exactly. Like, like who's next is a big one for me. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of weird ones in there. Like, like the, the police and bands like that were a massive deal to me as a kid. When I first started playing music, I was really like taken with bands like, like the police outlandos, the more New York dolls, first album, cheap oh, yeah. trick, the cheap trick. I have to say probably Budokan. It's always kind of feels like a cop out when you say a live album, but that's yeah. the kind of effect that they had on me. You know what I mean? Like doing oh, that. Life album from Budokan out, is a well-known yeah, album. I it mean. really is. Yeah. Dream police was also really big for me, but, um, I know I've said like 20 albums already, but they're, they're really, yeah. well, Ace of Spades is a big one. I mean, I, it's so funny when you talk to Lemmy about it, he would always be like, the first time we, one of the first times we saw Lemmy was in, back in that 91 trip to LA. And he was always at the Rainbow, always doing his rounds. When you wanted to actually know the real mayor of the Rainbow, it was Lemmy. Yeah. And he would, and he'd walk around. And my brother who played bass in my band at the time. He goes, I got to talk to Lemmy. I, and I was always that, like, I'm not, 
I'm not going to bother anybody, you know, uh, except for Slash, who just came to our table. But, um, but my brother goes over to him and he goes, Hey, I, I got to tell you, we, uh, we play Ace of Spades for our encore every night. And he goes, Always the Ace of Spades. He starts like, starts like kind of almost chewing my brother out. Always the Ace of Spades. Have you even heard our new album? 1916 was out at the time. It was a, it was a really great album. Have you heard on it? He went on this whole thing. My brother told me this guy. I didn't act, I could see them talking over there, but I did. He kind of came back. But he, <laughs> says, he says this whole thing about like 1916 is the greatest album we've made. And, you know, and he goes, he goes, like, well, okay, cool. You know, and then he turns around and as, as, as Lemmy walks away on the back of his jacket, of course, is Motorhead. The Ace of Spades. Ace of Spades. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, wait a second. <laughs> you're like, wait, you, you can't, you can't. <laughs> you're wearing it, man. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're not, you're not walking the walk right there. You're, uh, but uh, we, you know, that, that was a massive album. And I like, and again, things like the live album, uh, No Sleep Till Hammersmith was a big, was a big deal for us because like I say, we were getting a lot of this music late because we were so remote and like out of touch and, and we're young, you know, it was a lot of stuff was happening as these bands were several albums in before we got into them. So totally. Sticky Fingers by the Stones. I mean, I could go on. Well, <laughs> I, know, well, yeah. I know, no, yeah. I know, I know. Well, I think it's, yeah. And, and I say top five because it just stumps people. And it's like having to choose your, you know, from your children or something, whatever it is. Top five is really, the top top 10 would be hard enough. It, it's 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 just sort of like, because as I say this, I'll hang this up and go, oh my God. Oh, I know, I, I know. And I almost kind of like doing that to people. Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> So they, they or they slip up and say that one dumb album that they're like, oh, why did I say that? <laughs> like something really obvious. Like, well, yeah, most of the ones I said cool. were pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it works itself out because uh, you know when, when even like with Eddie Van Halen passing, oh. there's been so much Van Halen talk, and I and I was getting this controversial conversation where I go, my favorite album is Women and Children First, and people are always like, Women and Children First, and they always kind of like, what about you know like the first two are obviously obviously they're massive. Uh, influences and major records but i think because i bought women and children first with my own money you know back when i you know took my allowance money and went down and bought records i just sort of randomly bought women and children first and just invested my whole you know world into that for until the next record came along whatever it was um and that's why that record to me it just sort of really speaks to me and it's the, it doesn't have any of those sort of like hit songs on it it's sort of more like a a very deep cuts kind of album. And, and usually that's the case for me with, with a lot of records. So when I say who's next is kind of mildly obvious and Budokan and kiss alive, those are kind of obvious albums, but they had such an effect on me as a kid and as a, you know, picking up a guitar. Like I right. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, <clears throat> no, I know. And, and I, and I love asking the question too, because, you know, obviously I've had all walks of life on this, uh, podcast so far but you know a lot of big music buffs and that 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 gravitate towards a certain genre and then they'll say something that's just totally out there and i'm like okay you know but it's interesting to see because all these things come together which was a really sobering thing to me was realizing that it's not like this for everybody like some people get in their car back in the day when you'd have physical cds or something like that i'd get in the car with somebody and they would have like three CDs and, you know, it'd be really weirdly random, like Garth Brooks and then like, and then like a metal record. And then like, I'd be like really random. And I'd be like, and, and I realized that their day is not made or broken by the music they listen to. It's just kind of like, yeah, you know, I like this song. Yeah. They don't know who produced it. They don't know who wrote it. They often sometimes don't even know what the artist is. And I realized that the guys that I, and the people that I sort of, you know, kind of have you know, in my circle are the kind of guys who want to sit around and talk about who played on what and who played, who wrote this, or who produced this, where was it recorded? And that's just Why, sort of a, what, what the story behind the song. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fascination and it, and it is um, not all that normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I'm always, I'm always fascinated by the idea of you can work your way into finding something that you're interested in. Like, you could find somebody and go like, we love the Beatles. And even then you can find yourself arguing about like McCartney over Lennon. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> I'll be like, we found our way inside the Beatles. Like we love the Beatles. How can we like be still finding something to kind of like debate about? You know, like, I know which album, which sound I know yeah. it, it can go on and on. And I love that stuff too. So yeah. this, this has been a platform for me to kind yeah. of connect with people that are like-minded. So anyway, yeah, but thank you. Todd. Thank you. Thank it. you. 
Thanks so much for joining, guys. If you liked this episode, share a pic on Instagram and tag me. Send me a message to let me know what you liked or what you want to hear more of, or feel free to leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to head over to LA Woman Rocks on Instagram for some great classic rock photography.